bring me shelter I will not harm you Bring me shelter, please Bring me shelter I will not harm you I would shelter you People would do anything for their families It could happen to anyone anytime Somebody in France, somebody in England basically sat down with a ruler and just drew lines on maps. There are many different ethnic and religious groups that have been divided across borders and this has caused a significant amount of conflict. There are a lot of people who need safety. It is really cruel for a country like Australia to have policies that are focused only on pushing people away. What we're seeing is a number of people that remain in a state of limbo and when non-sustainable land use combines with climate change, the crisis of refugees. I wasn't able to go and play with children. I had to go and really be an adult from a very young age. I think that's something that a lot of migrant children can relate to. Really, it was a dream for me to reunite with my family. I was just praying and hoping that that day will come one day. I think it's very important for people to understand that people have their own dreams as well and they're wanting to change the world with everybody else. Refugee Radio, 855am, Tricia. Good morning, listeners. I'm here today with Professor Klaus Neumann. Um, we are at the Heinrich Hein University at a conference um, on the Australian perspectives on, on migration. And so he's, he's kindly agreed to an interview. So thank you and welcome. Thank you. <laughs> Professor Klaus Neumann has, has written a lot about um, the refugee and migration issues in Australia and, and um, over the world. Um, and so he, he's going to tell us, talk to us today about the refugee issue in Germany. So, yeah, could you tell us a bit about that? Um, well, as you probably all aware, um, a lot of uh, refugees came to Germany in 2015. That was a big challenge for the country. Um, the numbers have gone down since then. Uh, what has gone up since then is the level of hostility towards uh, the people who came, um, to the extent that the government is now very concerned to, um, to cut the numbers, to make sure that it is being seen, to be cutting the numbers, to make sure that it is being seen to uh, enforce deportations or enforce um, the deportations of people who um, are no longer um, eligible for, for being in Germany. Um, at the same time though, uh, the experience of 2015, which involved uh, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of Germans in some capacity as volunteers, um, uh, as people who were welcoming uh, refugees, has meant that there's also uh, a much stronger support network for refugees now than there was um, four or five years ago. We'd, and we have seen footage of that um, in, in Melbourne, it was circulated, and I know I've seen on social media, um, people welcoming them as they arrive from the train and things like that. Um, why do you think there's been this whole um, sort of wave against, against refugees and immigrants coming to Germany in the last few years? Um, well, one explanation for that is that uh, uh, 
the number of people coming in 2015, 2016, uh, the fact that there was seemingly no control over who came, that that upset a lot of people, that they then, um, uh, that, that the far right, the, um, the AfD, the alternative for Germany, Alternative for Deutschland, the far right party that was fairly small five years ago, uh, that at the 2013 elections didn't get enough votes to get into parliament, uh, then suddenly was able to attract lots more voters. Uh, so one explanation is that the, the arrival of the refugees, the seeming uh, chaos uh, that ensued and the inability of the government to control that chaos, that that resulted in um, a rise of um, xenophobic sentiment. Uh, I don't think that's actually true. Um, I think that sentiment has always been there. Uh, what has changed, though, is the preparedness of people to be open about uh, those sentiments. About voicing them. About yeah. voicing them, about articulating them, and still there, there are quite marked differences between different parts of Germany. Uh, so where I currently live in Hamburg, um, the support for the IFD is... Uh, fairly small. Uh, in in the four um, northern states of what used to be West Germany, so that is Hamburg, Bremen, Schleswig-Holstein, Niedersachsen, uh, the support for the AfD is well below 10%. Um, and in the East German states, excluding East Berlin, it is well over 20%. Um, so there are very important regional differences. Mm. Um, but I think in all those cases, the people who now vote for the AfD, the people who who join um, demonstrations against uh, foreigners, against asylum seekers, against refugees, um, uh, they didn't suddenly change their mind in 2015. They were probably always harboring these sentiments, but now they, they think um, they are entitled to say to what speak they out, yeah. yeah, because of the yeah. situation. Right, yeah. We've spoken previously to the director of Human Rights Watch here in Germany, um, Wenzel, um, and he he mentioned um, the the change um, has also happened with refugees not coming in anymore because they've shut down all the borders in Europe. Um, so even with a change of government in Germany, if if that does happen, will that help at all? The people who are stuck on the border of Europe who are trying to flee um, those areas in the Middle East? Um, no, I don't think so. I mean, what, what is sort of interesting about the, the, um, the prominence that the topic has assumed, especially in the last few months, is that the number of refugees arriving is currently very small. Mm. Um, so, it, you know, from a peak of almost a million in 2015 and has gone down to something like a, you know, it's probably going to be less than 200,000 this year. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the problem in inverted commas mm. uh, is, is actually disappearing. Yeah, it is. Uh, at the same time, there's more anxiety about refugees and asylum seekers in Germany. Um, but I think uh, no matter who's going to be in government, uh, uh, I think the EU is trying very hard to um, to make sure that fewer people are arriving. Uh, they do that by making deals with countries in 
uh, on the borders, on the borders mm. but also in the Sahel, so with Nigeria or Mauritania or uh, Senegal. Um, they have made a very controversial deal with Turkey, and again, I mean, this sort of remains to be seen what's going to happen to that because. Uh, um, the Turkish government is aware that they can use that as a, um, in order to leverage um, other um, things from the EU. I think at the time when the when the Turkish government negotiated that deal, the expectation was that the deal with the EU would facilitate the Turkish EU negotiations for uh, Turkey's entry into the EU. That is now pretty much out of the question whether that in the end will um, prompt the Turkish government to say to the refugees that they're currently uh, accommodating in Turkey, why don't you move on? Um, that again, you know, something to be seen. So that would that, uh, clearly dramatically alter the landscape. Mm. But if things sort of continue on the current trajectory, then I think the number of uh, asylum seekers arriving in the EU is going to remain fairly small. Um, and what do you think of that from an ethics perspective? You're a professor, you, you've done so much studies and research on, on this topic. Um, ethically, in, in the, the context of the, the world and what we should be doing as a society, um, what do you think we should do about, about this issue, particularly, like, um, as you say, the, the borders are now a lot more closed the fewer people are coming in but it all means that the more people are stuck outside with nowhere to go mm. um, well I think um, uh, the number of people that could be um, accommodated by countries such as Germany and Australia should also be determined by the capacities of these countries to accommodate refugees and asylum seekers clearly their capacity uh, is much uh, larger than the capacity of countries such as Lebanon or Jordan yes. or even Turkey. Yeah. Uh, so there's no question that Germany could accommodate more uh, people than it currently does. Now the question is, who is you know, making who's that going decision? To well, yeah. and who's going to benefit? Um, so, which people are we talking about? Um, so, is it a matter for the German government to say, well, we want more people from, say, Jordan or Lebanon to come? We're going to select people there in the camps. I think the most urgent uh, demand for uh, refugee advocates in Germany is to push the government to extend the family reunification. Yes. So yeah. that the the, um, the refugees already in Germany uh, that they are going to be allowed to, um, to Bring their sponsor family. their yeah. family members to come to Germany. That's a very controversial issue at the moment. The second one is for people who are already here uh, and whose asylum claims have been rejected but who have got work, who are going to school here or who are Set doing an apprenticeship, yeah. that they are going to be allowed to stay. And um, that's um, that's a very controversial issue at the moment. Um, the, uh, uh, the the government has just agreed on a new deal whereby people whose claims have been rejected but who have got duldung, which is this sort of strange German uh, legal concept whereby somebody who's, uh, who can't be sent back to their country of origin 
but whose claim for protection has been denied uh, is allowed to stay in Germany. Um, usually that, well, that used to mean they were not allowed to work, uh, they were not allowed to go to school. Now that has changed and uh, for some of those people it is now possible to uh, stay uh, more permanently um, you know, after that latest agreement that the government has struck. I have read a report um, on uh, written um, about how to integrate new refugees and migrants into the labor market in Germany mm-hmm. and how they're trying to work towards that. And I think, I think to Germany's credit, that's actually a really good thing because I don't think I've seen anything similar for Australia because we haven't really got that far in... in we're still fighting for them to, to be taken out of detention centers. Um, we haven't even reached the, the point of how to integrate them into the labor market. Um, and, and looking back from to Australia, from Germany, um, and even from Italy, it kind of seems like um, we have normalized what is going on in Australia. I guess what I, I don't understand is how how we have let that happen. Um, do you have an opinion on that? How did we go so far down doing this to people um, when other governments haven't gone that extreme yet? <laughs> um, well, one would have to go back to, you know, in order to understand where we are in Australia at the moment, uh, to go back to at least not the early 1990s um, when. Uh, the immigration department, as was still called then, um, perceived uh, the need to um, to demonstrate that Australia uh, was uh, in control of uh, who arrived and who was allowed to stay. After the Tiananmen Square massacre, a lot of uh, Chinese uh, students were given temporary visas. Uh, uh, bureaucrats in the immigration department weren't particularly happy about that, particularly given the large number of those people. And then um, it ensued a number of reforms of the Migration Act, which included uh, mandatory detention of asylum seekers, uh, and which sort of logically led to the situation that we have got now. Um, so I think. So it didn't just happen overnight, is what, well, what you're trying to say. Didn't it's it's sort of embedded in history. Yeah, it certainly didn't happen overnight. It's, mm. It didn't happen suddenly in 2001 mm, either. Yeah. Um, uh, so I think there's always been this anxiety in Australia about people coming by boat. Um, Which why we al- had the Australia policy. But also. Uh, an anxiety about people coming uh, in an uncontrolled or seemingly uncontrolled way. Do you think that if the government um, was seen to be doing it in a more controlled way, do you think that would that would help the situation? Well, that's sort of what the government claims. You know, the government says uh, we want to uh, resettle refugees from the camps, um, and we are going to decide whom we are going to resettle. And in order for for that resettlement program to be viable, we need to close all the other routes. Um, um, I mean, that's something that the government has said for a very long time, that what they are doing in terms of asylum seekers is something they're doing in the interest of 
the Australian people. Well, or and in the interest of refugees who okay. are being resettled. Except that, but that, that it's turned into this indefinite detention, um, to to the point of them um, deteriorating mentally and and physically almost in That's there. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, on a more personal note, what what got you started? You you've done almost your whole life doing doing studies in, into this kind of thing. What what made you get interested in this in the first place? Um. Well, I haven't actually uh, spent my whole life. Uh, Oh, you have doing research on refugees. <laughs> no, uh, just a lot of a lot of part of it. I started doing research on Papua New Guinea. Ah, yeah. Uh, so that's a completely different yep. uh, topic. Um, well, I I had been living in New Zealand for a couple of years, um, and I came back to Australia in at the end of 2000. Um, so I came back at a time when the refugee issue was very prominent, and then I was lucky enough to. Um, to get a fellowship from the National Archives of Australia and I could pretty much pick my topic so uh, at the time nobody had really been uh, interested in a systematic way in the history of uh, refugee migration to Australia so I thought why not you know look um, into that look into that initially I was interested in a very small uh, part of that topic I was interested in um, Austrian and German refugees who came to Australia in the late 1930s and who were then interned as enemy aliens uh, during the Second World War. No way! So, um, you know, the, my, my interest sort of got bigger. <laughs> the detention camps now are not uh, really comparable to the internment camps uh, of the Second World War. That is very I mean, in interesting. In fact, a lot of the people who were interned in those camps remember them quite fondly. So um, it wasn't a place of cruelty, or um, it was a place of cruelty for for um, a lot of the refugees who were interned. But the majority of the internees were not refugees. So the majority um. of the internees were uh, Germans. Or, um, um, Germans or people of German ancestry, uh, Italians, Japanese, uh, who were, uh, in the case of Germans and Italians, were interned because they had sympathies for the then governments in Germany and Italy. Um, so, what was a, what was very cruel about that um, internment system was that the refugees who were interned, so Jewish refugees, uh, political refugees who fled Germany and Austria in, say, 1938 or early 1939, um, that they were interned in the same camps as people who sympathized with the Nazi party in Germany and in camps that were pretty much run by those people. And was there much conflict in those camps because well, of that? Was, but the, you know, the refugees, the refugee internees were clearly in the minority in those camps. So, you know, for them, that was a terrible situation. Um, and that lasted um, about a couple of years until then the Australian government realized that there were different sorts of internees and that they needed to be separated. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that's the sort of big injustice of uh, the, uh, the internment history. 
That is definitely very interesting. That's something I haven't come across yet. Um, obviously, I haven't we read weren't supposed as to well. Talk about but that's yeah. great. That's really, really interesting because I think to look forward, I, I think we do need to look at the past and what has happened in the past and, mm. and try and learn from that. And I, I think that's really it. Have you written a book on that or a paper have, or something? Yeah. yeah. What's it called? It's called In the Interest of National Security. In the Interest of National Security. Can I still find that somewhere? Yes, I'm sure you can. In, okay. I mean, I think the one issue that Australian listeners might be really interested in about the German situation is, um, you know, while some of the aspects of the situation here look very bleak, especially if you look at them from the outside, so that uh, the EU and Germany are doing, uh, are pursuing policies that um, seem to be reminiscent of Australian policies, what is very different here is the level of support now for uh, asylum seekers and refugees. Um, there's an, uh, there is a new movement in Germany which is, which is called Seebrücke and Seebrücke literally translated means sea bridge um, and the people who protest under the umbrella of Seebrücke are uh, protesting against the uh, criminalization of civilian search and rescue missions in the Mediterranean. Now, at first sight, that seems a rather um, specific issue, uh, but that has um, generated enormous um, support in Germany. Um, they have the, the, the first demonstrations um, started about three months ago. Since then, there have been more demonstrations in more than 140 towns and cities in Germany. Um, I recently went to one in Hamburg with 16,000 people. Um, so there's a there's a groundswell of support for um, uh, um, creating some means of uh, safe passage for uh, irregular migrants who are now stuck in Libya, Morocco, Algeria, uh, Egypt. Uh, to come to. So, do they go rescue them and then and then help them well, come into Germany? To. They yeah, used yeah. To. Uh, now, because of the Italian government's uh, criminalization of it, uh, those missions have all been uh, um, suspended. Uh, some of those ships have been seized by um, by the authorities in Malta or in Italy. Um, and for the others, it doesn't really make much sense to, you know, rescue somebody, um, in, you know, off the Libyan coast if you then have to take them all the way to Spain, which is one of the one Ports. of the countries mm -hmm. that um, is still fairly sympathetic uh, towards those missions. Um, so yes, they they have been suspended, um, and the the protest, you know, is trying to. Uh, put pressure on the European Union to uh, to either undertake those rescue missions itself. Um, you know, it, it is not something that should be done by you know private organisations, NGOs. You know, it should be done by uh, government, uh, or to make it possible for those private missions to resume um, what they were doing before and what were they what they were doing before pretty well. Um, so that's an interesting, I think, new development. That is and, very interesting. And what's interesting about that is that um, uh, I think it's an attempt to say 
uh, when we talk about human rights in Europe, we are not only concerned with human rights for citizens, and we are not only concerned with human rights for non-citizens. That already is a big difference to Australia, where. Uh, there isn't much interest in human rights for non-citizens, but I think that is now fairly well accepted, particularly in countries such as Germany. But now uh, the, the human rights should also be extended uh, to people outside of uh, Europe's borders, you know, say to people in, in camps in, in Libya, and they are very... Um, um, you know, even even Australian um, detention centres um, are fairly benign places in comparison to to those camps in Libya. Um, so, you know, it is very important that um, that the European Union puts pressure on Libya that these camps are closed, facilitates the transfer of people from from Libya to Europe, uh, ensures that people who are being rescued in the Mediterranean are to return to Libya, which is something that the Italian government has been uh, advocating. So what action or direction do you think that uh, um, Australian activists or uh, um, people working human rights, do you, what do you think they should take? Um, what direction should they take or what further actions um, from all you, from your research? Um, in, in relation to yeah, Australian Yeah, issues, yeah, in, in Australian issues. Um, well, I wish um, Australian refugee advocacy weren't so focused on uh, relying on emotions in sort of winning the support of the public. Uh, you know, it's it's all very well to uh, to argue that the children should be brought back to Australia from Nauru or that they shouldn't, if they, you know, mothers who gave birth in Australia, that the children should then remain in Australia. But uh, it's not that children have got a sort of privileged uh, position, you know. The, the, parents, the, are, the parents are still there. Too, and, yeah. you know, single men too. You know, mm. there's no reason why anybody should be on Nauru. Mm. Um, so I think... Um, uh, it's important to um, to try to introduce more of the language of human rights into the Australian discourse and rely less on fickle emotions such as compassion. Do you um, think that uh, compassion isn't strong enough as maybe uh, pragmatism or when it comes to th things like this? Well, I think compassion is great in order to get a conversation going compassion is great to sort of as a as a first prompt for action and thought uh, but it's not sustainable okay because um, people get tired people get easily tired and um, you know the argument against compassion uh, when it comes to refugees is that uh, it is possible to find people who are not deserving of compassion you know there's no reason why um, somebody who is not a very nice person uh, should not have the same rights to be resettled in Australia as somebody who is, uh, you know, say a two-year-old child who is very yes. innocent. Yes, yeah. Um, if they have both the, um, the same claim on protection. 
and uh, and that's you know, that's a, got nothing to do with uh, whether somebody is, is deserving, deserving to be resettled. So even to push that a bit further, even mm. somebody who you know who, who has been given protection in Australia and who then commits uh, a crime, commits a crime. You know that doesn't necessarily mean that that person is. Worthy of being deported. Well, that, that 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 the protection needs of that person are any less uh, because that person has committed a crime. I've just together with a um, a colleague of mine from La Trobe University, Savitri Taylor, we have written an article about um, uh, a man from Cuba who was resettled in Australia as a refugee in 1980, and who. Uh, was who had then run-ins with the law, uh, who was sentenced to a prison sentence, and uh, whom the government then wanted to deport. Um, now Cuba didn't want him, um, and he had been resettled in Australia as a refugee. He was not yet an Australian citizen, um, so the government proceeded with the deportation, nevertheless, um, because. Um, as far as they were concerned, uh, he was not somebody, you know, who deserved to be in Australia, and that led to that man being stuck at Singapore Airport for several months um, because no country was uh, willing to to accommodate him. Um, so I think in cases such as that, uh, the discourse relying on compassion alone you know, wouldn't be able to, um, to, to mobilize any yeah. support in, uh, for, you know, uh, a guy like that because, you know, maybe he wasn't a very uh, um, nice, nice person. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for uh -huh. being with us today. You've been listening to Refugee Radio.